I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, I'm Helen Joyce, the finance editor of The Economist. Welcome to Money Talks. Coming up on the program, Netflixonomics. How the global media giant is rewriting the magic formula for winning TV. The crown must win. Must always win. Can a way of providing public services that seems to have turned toxic recently ever be rescued? Carillion is just one example of this model going badly. But since then, we've had a slew of profit warnings from a lot of the other companies. And also political opinion has turned against it. It's a model under attack. And how do you avoid the resource curse? What would you do if you were in charge of a developing country that found oil? I actually did my best to make a hash of things just to see how wrong you could be. First, Netflix is the giant of TV streaming. It's come a vast way from its beginnings as a mail-order DVD service. Goldman Sachs estimates that it will spend $22.5 billion on content by 2022. To put that in context, the whole Hollywood TV industry spent about $25 billion in 2017. Last year, Netflix streams were taking 20% of the world's downstream bandwidth, more than any other company. You could argue that it's created a new TV art form, the binge watch. But it's also rewriting the economics of global television. Is it in danger of becoming too powerful, too successful? Gaddy Epstein went to Studio Babelsberg in Germany, where the new series of Dark, a Netflix German science fiction thriller, is in pre-production. Gestern, heute Morgen folgen sich aufeinander. Sie sind in einem ewigen Kreis miteinander verbunden. I'm at Studio Babelsberg, the sprawling film studio complex outside of Berlin that has been the hub of the German film industry for decades, going back to movies such as Fritz Lang's Metropolis. Now it is increasingly the hub of a renaissance in German television, including such shows as Dark on Netflix. Unter uns ist ein Mörder. The Netflix original series is very popular since its release last year, and not just here in Germany. It is filmed in German and has reached a very wide audience. It has millions of viewers in the US, Mexico, and Brazil. In fact, nine out of 10 viewers are from outside Germany. So how exactly is Netflix changing the industry here? With our show Dark, just to be received globally in, in that huge way is very, very new for German filmmakers, to be honest. It just really helps to change the way creatives think about what kind of content can be um, can be made. Being one of the most successful German shows, that is really, really big and helps a lot for the creative process, how to tell a story and try other things to like genre stories, etc., which never worked here. That's like a huge impact. Janta Frieze and Baron Boodar both created the hit show and are showrunners on Dark. They signed an exclusive overall deal with the streaming giant. 
the first European overall deal Netflix has made. And the role of the showrunner, which is familiar to Hollywood, is a new phenomenon in Germany. They are the ones who have overall creative authority and responsibility over the program. They can direct the storyline, the look of the show, even the soundtrack. Not only is Netflix changing the way we consume television, but it is also influencing and changing the structure of the industry globally. Basically, in Germany, um, showrunners didn't exist. It's a it's a profession that didn't exist here. It's in Germany. It's very much a, a producers and directors driven um, market. Uh, you just need someone who oversees the beginning, the end, the middle, and just know how it all ties together. So the um, the showrunner is just an important person, and I hope that. The industry is changing in that way that we will definitely have more showrunners. And to what do you credit this development of even having showrunners here? Well, I think because there are new players out there on the market like Netflix, Amazon, Sky, whatever you call them. So I think just the change of the market and who you're working with has changed the whole term of being a showrunner. And I think it's really good because unfortunately writers don't have any power uh, in Germany yet. Being a creator is not just being to write something or to direct something, but also to have the economically responsibility of something. I think if you compare it to a painter, for example, uh, you can paint on the canvas, but you also have to spend money on the paint, you know, and knowing like, can I buy a paint for a hundred euros or for a thousand euros? And I think that combination uh, is very, very important for a creative process. And we really love it. And I think it will change here too and people see it as well. Netflix, which started out renting DVDs by mail 20 years ago, was the brainchild of Reed Hastings, who is still the CEO of the firm. I met him in their European headquarters in Amsterdam. He says that expanding and influencing the global industry plays into their company ethos. Our number one goal is member satisfaction. And our number two goal is really around creating empathy between peoples. Uh, seeing stories from other nations, like Casa de Papel last quarter was an amazing hit for us, and you got to see this eclectic group of Spaniards take on the system. And so that really creates uh, storytelling around the world, which really increases global empathy. The importance of global storytelling is echoed by Todd Yellen, a vice president of product at Netflix. From their headquarters in Los Gatos, he and his team decide what shows up on your home screen and try to suggest to you the shows you want to watch. He says they're trying to future-proof their success by making sure they offer a huge diversity of programs. I don't know if it's a luxury or we have the smarts to know that don't put all of Netflix's chips onto one betting on one hand. Because if you bet everything on one hand, man, that's a risky business and I don't want ulcers in my life. So instead, what we do is we are very much diversifying our portfolio of the kinds of content we have. Different costs, different genres, different kinds of people, different places in the world, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So with that ability, we don't have to make sure, oh my God, it's live or die. If this title doesn't do huge for Netflix, game over. Plus, the title's gonna be on Netflix for a long time and we can get back, you know, we can monetize it through our subscriptions for years to come. So it's not opening weekend or bust. If Netflix grows at its current rate, it could absolutely dominate the market. And there's been quite a backlash against the power of big tech companies. So I asked Reed Hastings whether they are in danger of stifling the competition. The internet is driving on-demand television for both YouTube and Netflix at incredible rates. 
And so I don't worry about competition. We even see HBO in the United States continuing to grow despite Netflix's amazing growth. So in the long term, what we worry about is how do we be a good global citizen when we're very large in many countries? And we'll have to figure that out show by show, country by country, and trying to stay ahead of countries' expectations. And what about the criticisms that they are spending too much, taking on too much debt? We've been increasing operating margins the last few years. So we were 4% two years ago, 7% last year, 10% this year, and we're continuing that trend. So the basic business model is working extremely well. But when we do new shows, that's a lot of cash out front. Like we'll pay $100 million, say, for the crown up front, and then we've got the season for many years ahead of our member enjoyment. And so our cash flow is negative uh, this year, considerably three to $4 billion of negative free cash flow, despite being profitable with growing operating margins. It is indeed a big swing. Netflix's debt is junk rated. And Reed Hastings says the company will continue borrowing billions for many years to come. If subscriber growth slows or the credit markets tighten up, that could mean big problems for Netflix. But the company is expanding quickly to stave off a raft of competitors, from Amazon to AT&T, which has bought Time Warner to go directly to consumers with entertainment, to eventually Disney and possibly Comcast, who are in a bidding war with each other for much of 21st Century Fox so that they can build their own rivals to Netflix. They will chase for customers around the world. Whoever wins out, Netflix has brought us the global TV network. Gaddy Epstein, thank you. You're listening to Money Talks on Economist Radio. If you like what you hear and want to read more, you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12. Next, the model of outsourcing, contracting out public services like running hospitals or providing school meals or collecting bins, was a British public policy innovation. In Britain, outsourcing now accounts for 11% of GDP. It's 16% in Germany and as much as 23% in the Netherlands. Richard Cockett is The Economist Britain business editor. Richard, it's a very tarnished model now ever since January when Carillion collapsed, leaving massive debts and various public services in the lurch. Absolutely. Carillion was a disaster. It was one of the largest outsourcing companies and collapsed with the loss of thousands of jobs, leaving several high-profile government contracts in the lurch, hospitals, school meals, etc., etc., Carillion is just one example of this model going badly. But since then, we've had a slew of profit warnings, etc., from a lot of the other companies. I mean, in truth, for the past five or six years, the model has been really struggling. And a lot of the companies involved have been really struggling. And also political opinion has turned against it quite a lot. Jeremy Corbyn, the leader of the Labour Party, has waged a sustained campaign against it. So it's, it's a model under attack. Actually, if you look at the results since the 1980s, it's been pretty good for outsourcing. Basically, outsourcing was designed to achieve three outcomes. The first one was to save money for the public exchequer. Um, The second one was to create value for money. The third one was to improve quality. The first one, there's no doubt that over time, governments, local governments, have saved an awful lot of money by contracting out services to more efficient private companies. Value for money, probably about 50-50 there. Undoubtedly, some 
successes, some spectacular fiascos as well. But we must remember when discussing spectacular fiascos that governments are very, very easy at um, creating their own incompetencies and fiascos. And thirdly, in terms of quality, yes, some improvement, although there's no doubt that our contracting out does some things better than others. It's not very good at managing complex human-related services like nursing, social care, firefighting. That's not a bad record. The problem is, is that on saving money, you've been saving much less money over time because it's been very successful. So it's, it's already taken the low-hanging fruit and it's also nudged the public sector into doing better, I presume. Absolutely. And that's sort of how it was supposed to work. In a lot of cases, you're now into the third, fourth, fifth generation of private contracting. Each time a private contractor comes in, they make it more efficient, cut out more costs, etc. So now it's, it's the, the margins are very small on what you can actually save in terms of money. And as you say, it's forced public services, in-house services, to up their game. So they're much more efficient. In a country like Britain, it was highly unionised in the early 1980s. That's not the case now. So it's much more easy for local government contract, local government councillors and authorities as well as central government to make good contracts with public services and public service unions. So Carillion was bidding too aggressively because it needed to win contracts in order to keep its cash flow going. I gather it's called suicide bidding and it was always going to crash. How come there wasn't a pre-warning of this? There were some warnings. What's happened since 2010 is austerity has made a huge difference. Basically, government has tried to save a lot of money by cutting the money that these contracting companies get for delivering public services to the bone. They've gone on bidding for these services, for service contracts, even though they know that they're probably going to not make any money out of it or even lose money at the beginning just because they need the work to bring in the revenue to keep the company going. And that puts you in a very, very perilous situation when one or two contracts go belly up, as does happen in any contracting work, and as happened with Carillion, then you've got almost nothing to fall back on and the company goes up. Um, and that's what happened with Carillion. So what has to happen if contracting out is still to be a good model for governments to look at? I think the main thing that needs to happen is that the relationship between government and contractors or local government and contractors has to change. The trend over the past eight, nine years has been all towards basically saving money for the exchequer at any cost. And the thing is, there is an argument that is what contracting out is supposed to achieve, but that's only one of the things contracting out is supposed to achieve. If you can't make any money on these contracts, or it's very hard to make any money on these contracts, of course you're going to cut corners, save on quality, etc., etc. And that's what gets the whole model a very bad name. And also that means you can't make any money and you go bust. And that just means that the number of competitors in the field shrinks and shrinks and shrinks until, of course, there are no cost competition on these contracts, which means that you're probably going to end up paying more for the contracts than you had before. So there has to be much more mature and sensible relationship between the government and the contractors. On the one hand, the government has to make sure that they're not trying to drive every contractor to the wall when they award a contract. And on the contractor side, they have to be much more open. They have to have much more open book accounting. They have to be about 
a lot more honest about what they're doing. Because the problem is in Britain is that a lot of this is shrouded in mystery under the pretext of commercial confidentiality. And this has allowed critics of the model to criticise it completely because, you know, it's all obscure. There's no public access to any of it. And when it all goes wrong, it then becomes a bit of a surprise because you didn't know how well or, uh, or badly the company was doing originally. So since the 1980s, the model has squeezed costs probably as much as it can, and now it's got to breathe a bit again. Thanks, Richard. Thank you very much, Helen. Let us know what you think about any of our stories. We'd love to hear from you. Contact us on Twitter at Economist Radio or email us at radio at economist.com. Finally, many developing countries fall prey to the so-called resource curse. Their citizens will want to know how their countries can make the most of natural resources like oil wealth. How can they learn this in an engaging way? One new online game is trying to help. Your helicopter lands in the fictional country of Petronia. In the newspaper, the headline reads, Discovery of the Decade Made in Petronia. It's oil. Uma Sayala, the president, says... The decisions we make will affect many generations to come. Petropantera stock skyrockets as the junior energy company closes in on a big deal in oil-rich petroleum. The stakes for President Sayal are high, with foreign investors and local voices vying for influence. Petropantera CEO Alain Lille announces that the deal with the former regime is in the best interests of petroleum. President Sayala, recently elected on her promises of economic development in Petronia, is asking for more time to review the government strategy on Aladdin 1. The president has called in a team of independent experts, economists, lawyers, academics and you. Simon Cox is Emerging Markets Editor at The Economist. Tell us a little about how this game works, Simon. Well, it's quite fun. So you're um, a member of this team of experts and you have to work your way uh, through a number of days in Petronia, talking to the president, talking to her advisors, uh, mixing with local businessmen, uh, even visiting the mayor in the district where this oil discovery has been made, trying to pick up information, get a sense of uh, the lie of the land, the competing interests, and then making recommendations. So from the sounds of it, you've tried this game. How did you do? (laughs) Um, So I actually did my best to uh, make a hash of things just to see uh, how wrong you could be. Um, I did discover that the game gives you some agency, but it's what they call constrained agency. So even if you make some rather odd choices, they tend to steer you uh, back on track. But it does uh, nonetheless do a good job, I think, of showing that there are trade-offs here, that there isn't you know, usually one obvious right answer. Um, in particular, For example, you have to decide whether you want to try and get revenues up front or whether you're prepared to wait. You have to decide whether you want those revenues to be steady or you want to take a share of the upside if things go really well. And there are dilemmas around the politics as well. Um, In the scenario they've developed, expectations have been raised very high, uh, partly as a result of an election campaign that got uh, the president you're advising uh, elected. And so people are impatient And there's a deal that's already been made with a foreign company. Uh, That deal was made secretively. It might not be the best deal, but reopening that contract will potentially delay things and possibly open a can of worms. So there's, there's often no right answer, even if you're seeking the wrong one. Well, you were seeking the wrong one. I'm riveted. Tell me what sorts of things you tried to do. 
Well, for example, um, there's a moment where you can uh, agree to meet a journalist who might have some inside information. And just to be perverse, I tried my best to avoid meeting this journalist saying I was too busy. Uh, but it turned out she picked me up and took me to the airport anyway. Um, so uh, it does sort of keep you very much uh, in line with the plot. Um, I would describe it, uh, in all fairness, as a, a particularly entertaining course rather than a particularly educational computer game. I think it's a good way of conveying information and putting you in other people's shoes. Uh, it's obviously aimed, I think, at broadly sort of technocratic, perhaps civil society advocates. But you do uh, get to imagine what it would be like to rub shoulders at a cocktail party with the chief executive of a foreign oil company, a Norwegian donor, an investigative journalist, other characters that you might otherwise not uh, consider. Who's behind it and what are they trying to do with it? It's an institute called the Natural Resource Governance Institute, which is a think tank based in New York and London that's very keen to improve transparency in the resources sector in the developing world. So they're keen on uh, helping countries to sort of structure their decisions perhaps adopt international initiatives like the uh, Extractive Industries Transparency Initiative. So they do have uh, some uh, agenda here, but a fairly uh, broad and open-ended one that's, I think, sufficiently attentive to, to the trade-offs involved in a lot of these decisions. Their hope is that this course, which is in some ways similar to the course they would give to policymakers or to uh, real experts, they're hoping this version of the course will appeal to a broader constituency including, for example, civil society advocates, or that it might just get people interested in the topic who might then go on to study it in more depth later. Is it all completely fictional? Well, Petronia is clearly an amalgam of various countries that uh, the Institute has worked with. Um, there are some references to the national drink of Petronia, which sounds a little bit like some of the national drinks of Peru. Um, and also the, the characters' images, their sort of physical appearance, is modelled on people at the Institute and they've clearly had some fun with this. For example, the slightly secretive French oil executive is modelled on their head of transparent contracts. So they've clearly gone for a, an ironic inside joke there. But still very accessible, you think, to a broader audience. They might not get all the inside jokes, but they should learn something. Thanks, Simon. Thank you. That's all for this episode of Money Talks. Don't forget to rate us on your podcast provider. I'm Helen Joyce. In London, this is The Economist. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium.